Oh Lord, send your spirit to move in our world and stir the water of our souls so that we will desire a word of instruction that awakens us to the joy of your coming reign. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we continue our five-part, five-Sunday September series on the book of James, five-chapter book. Uh, Pastor Jan Edmondson is, she's also the editor of the magazine Presbyterian Outlook. She calls the book of James Christianity 101, like those basic, basic level college freshman courses. Aren't you glad those were behind you? <laughs> Like those courses that introduce the fundamentals of a subject, James presents basics in Christian living. In today's passage, he talks about two things that are incompatible with Christian living, favoritism and inaction. So listen now for God's message for us in the second chapter of James starting at the first verse. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our Lord Jesus, glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor, you say, sit there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor, poor it is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Then skipping a few verses. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked, and lacks food daily. And one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O oh Lord, may my words and may our thoughts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One question to keep in mind. Any evidence? James starts the second chapter of his letter describing two different ways to welcome people to church. These days, these days it'd go like this. The first couple arrives in their brand new Mercedes. They are stylishly and expensively dressed, bejeweled, and immaculately coiffed and accessorized. Her bag is either a Gucci or a Prado, and her shoes are either Yves Saint Laurent or a Louboutin. 
hey, is he wearing a Rolex? So the usher shows them to choice seats. I don't know whether those are the choice seats in the back or the choice in the front, but choice <laughs> seats. And says, oh, sit here, please. The other couple arrives in an old jalopy. Their clothes are raggedy and need cleaning, and so do they. And the usher points and says, how about y'all sit over yonder? James says, making such distinctions is evil thinking. Not just a mistake, not just wrong, evil. Now James shows that, says that showing that kind of favoritism is so bad, it calls into our question our belief in Jesus Christ. Now last week, did any of y'all watch some of those uh, Senate hearings for the President's nominee for the Supreme Court? Not to worry. This is not politics. This has to do with bipartisan sin. <laughs> One of the senators talked about how the statue that represents Lady Justice wears a blindfold as she is weighing her decisions in the scales of justice so that no one, no one has some advantage on the basis of their appearance, their race, their gender, their wealth, their poverty, their age. Nothing you could just see. That's why they say justice is blind. James says that making distinctions based on appearance or possessions amounts to acts of favoritism that call to question our very belief in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So if we kowtow and bow to people because of they're rich or famous or look like they might be or somehow powerful and disrespect poor people. We're making distinctions that are just not right. We're being judges with evil thoughts and we know judges with evil thoughts, they don't do justice, do they? The Old Testament addressed judges and favoritism too. In Leviticus 19 we read, you shall not render an unjust judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. And Deuteronomy says that Moses said, I charged your judges at that time, give the members of your community fair hearing and judge rightly between one person and another, whether citizen or resident alien. You must not be partial in judging. Hear out the small and the greater light. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Well, then James talks about the poor and the rich. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and be heirs of the kingdom that he's promised for those who love him? So we are to be careful that we do not dishonor the poor. By contrast, he said that isn't it the rich who oppress you? They're the ones that can afford the lawyers to drag you to court, right? Is it not they who would be without mercy? Well, let's be clear. Being poor does not make you good. And being rich does not make you bad. But being poor, being poor makes you vulnerable. And being rich makes you powerful. If you're vulnerable, you need protecting. And it, if you're vulnerable, you need protecting. And if you are powerful, well, you need watching. 
Last week I said that one of the most famous verses in this book of James was in that first chapter. Well, the other most famous verse in James is in chapter 2. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. He starts with the futility, the uselessness of inaction. The brother or sister is naked, lacks food, and one of you says, Go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and you don't supply their needs. What good is that? We see this kind of hypocritical profession of sympathy <coughs> combined with heartless inaction. Well, for example, after every mass shooting, when innocent people are killed in a school, a movie theater, a church, a country music concert, when the politicians solemnly say, our thoughts and prayers are with the family and we need to do something about mental health, and then they don't do anything. Nothing to improve mental health, nothing to keep guns out of the hands of people who don't have any business having them, who can't be responsible with them. Some people, not me, but some people wrongly ridicule, belittle the power of prayer. But James would ask, what good are thoughts and prayers unless they are accompanied by action to protect the innocent? Faith and action are married, and they cannot be divorced. A couple of weeks ago, your guest preacher, the one down at Fayetteville today, read from the 11th chapter of Hebrews, a passage sometimes called the Roll call of the, of the faithful. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul named a person of faith, and then he said what they did that showed their faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain's. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Remember, Abram, Abraham, as an old man, was called to go to another country. And didn't even say which one is going to be, but a country I'll show you. And he obeyed, not knowing where he was going. Faith and action are married and can't be divorced. Faith requires action. So let me ask you a question. If being a Christian were declared a crime, some sort of serious felony, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If law enforcement officer came to your door to arrest you on the charge of being a Christian and you were given an attorney and arraigned and indicted and finally brought to the trial before a jury of your peers, would the prosecution be able to present enough evidence to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are, as charged, a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ? Could they show that you honored God with your participation and, for example, in the work and worship of the church? your time in private prayer, your study of God's word? Would your family or friends or neighbors or co-workers be able to testify that you do indeed act like a Christian, not just on Sunday morning? A Christian who does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with God. Could the prosecution called, well, just for example, the least of these? Would they be able to testify? I was hungry and you gave me food. Thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Or would the case be dismissed because of 
insufficient evidence. So I'll ask you again. Being a Christian were a serious crime, a felony. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? James has told us why that's a serious question. He says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers because faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Thanks be to God. When you go home today, I invite you to write down some places and situations where in the coming week, God can use you to listen to someone, to be patient with someone, to care for those in need. I commission you as not merely hearers, but doers of the word, to be God's co-workers, God's partners in making this world a more trustworthy, a more safe, a more healthy place for all of God's children. When Sarah was, oh, I don't know, first or second grade, she came home from church one day and she said, you know, several times lately after church, I came home feeling like I need to do something. Well, guess what we all do? We need to do something. So today, tomorrow and forever, glory to be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.